2 Samuel chapter 17, if you'll open your Bibles there. And we're going to continue in our study through this book, 2 Samuel chapter 17. So we're in the middle of looking at Absalom's rebellion. He's David's son. He's betrayed David. He's stolen the hearts of the people. Uh, Now he's leading a civil war. David, being the king over Israel, God's called, God's anointed, and really a man after God's own heart and a shepherd, does not want to see the people damaged. And so rather than stand and stay and fight with his son and the forces that his son has amassed, David has taken the more gracious path. It's a a path of obedience to walk with God and to trust in God. But that means that he leaves Jerusalem. He decided, look, I'm just going to let Absalom come in here so that we don't cause a lot of bloodshed. I'm going to leave and I'm going to trust in God. And, And it's an incredible walk of faith on David's part. So once again, we have David running through the wilderness and being pursued because his son isn't just content to to overthrow the the kingdom. No, he's going to go after David. And we see in our text today, he is going after David, wants to kill his own father. And so David is out in the wilderness and he's running for his life. And going through this section of scripture, what we've been studying, what we've been considering is this question, what happens in our life when we trust God and when we walk with him according to his will. Again, David, rather than fighting, determined, I'm just going to turn my, my lot over to God. I'm just going to trust God. I, I'm going I'm to bail out of Jerusalem. I'm going to go through the Kidron Valley, up through the Mount of Olives and on my way. And I'm just going to let God figure out what he's going to do. And I'm going to walk with him by faith. And so there's lessons for us here. As we extrapolate from David's life and we go, okay, what, how can I walk in faith like David walked in faith? How can I, you know, trust God and walk according to his will? And that's not easily done all the time. Because what happens is well, we discover that life is messy. Life is, it's filled with hurts. It's filled with betrayals. It's filled with unexpected trials. How many of you can relate? Yeah, you go through, it's not like a country western song played backwards, where you get your car back and your truck back and your dog back and your wife back. You know, you just, life is tough. And so what happens is, is that we're called to walk by faith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, I'll throw on the screen, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What that means is that we are called to walk by faith with God. But I'm a physical man. I live in a physical world. I have physical problems. And so it's hard for me to trust by faith in a God that I can't see to deal with problems that I can see. Does anybody relate with me on that? You ever struggle with putting feet on your faith? And so this is where we're at here. All of our instincts want to walk by sight. So again, the question is, how do we endure trials and at the same time walk with God, walk by faith in God, be able to trust our physical problems to a spiritual unseen God? How do we do that? Well, the answer to that question is anchored in the truth that our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is not a blind faith. The psalmist in Psalm 18 said this, that to the faithful, God shows himself faithful. And what that means is that when we trust God and take him at his word, 
And when we take action by faith to respond to God's word, well, God himself then shows up and he proves himself faithful through the exercise of our faith. It's not a blind faith. God shows us that he is who he says he is and that we can trust him. And so as we're looking at this last week, we looked at this walk of faith that David was on. And we saw that in this walk of faith, number one, that God frustrates the plans of his enemies. Secondly, we saw that God answers the prayers of his kids. And we looked at these two points last week. We saw that even though his son Absalom has betrayed him, even though he has amassed a very large group of people to fight against him, and even though Absalom has now David's most trusted advisor, who has also betrayed him, Ahithophel, Well, God frustrates Ahithophel's plans. And the frustration of Ahithophel's plans was through a very practical answer to David's prayer. David prayed when he found out Ahithophel was among the conspirators that had had betrayed him. He prayed and said, God, frustrate the plans that he's going to give to Absalom. And no sooner had he prayed that prayer than Hushai shows up. Hushai is a friend, a good friend of David's. And David, seeing Hushai, he says, Dude, what I need you to do is go down there, go back to Jerusalem, don't come with me, worm your way in to Absalom's good graces, and then in that position, when he trusts you, see if you can frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. And so he's, David sends Hushai to Absalom, God then uses uh, Hushai to thwart uh, Ahithophel's counsel, and as what we're going to see today is that As we trust in God, as we walk with God, not only does God frustrate the plans of his enemies, not only does God answer the prayers of his kids, but our our third point, our first point today, is that God provides for the needs of his people. As we trust him, as we walk by faith with him, God provides for the needs of his people. 2 Samuel 17, we'll pick it up in verse 24, and we read, Then David went to Mahanaim, is how you pronounce that. Mahanaim. And Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom, verse 25, made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone in to Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. Did you get all that? You clear on that? Listen, here it's just a, a very long way of saying that Absalom chose Joab's cousin to be his general. Joab is David's general. Joab has gone with David. He's proven himself to be a wonderful general, a great, you know, uh, very fierce opponent of those that he, he fights against. He stayed loyal to David. And so now Absalom, he's got the, the troops of, of Israel there, and he's got to get somebody to lead them. So he picks Joab's cousin to lead his, his forces. Verse 26 says, So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. And so again, last week what we saw was that um, Ahithophel counseled uh, uh, Absalom saying, look, David's on the run, he's cold, he's weary, he's hungry, he's tired, let's go after him now. Give me, give me 12,000 forces, uh, not, not a huge force in terms of the entire army, but enough of a, of a force that we can go immediately, we'll strike him while he's tired, we'll knock him out. 
And so this is where um, David's friend Hushai thwarted the council because he said, hey, you know what? Great advice, but wrong timing. Because, you know, your dad's a fierce warrior and what's going to happen is these guys are going to go, they're going to take casualties and then the word's going to come back and everybody's going to freak out because they're going against David and you, take, you took some early losses. No, you got to go against him with overwhelming force. So when he gives him that counsel, uh, Absalom decided, oh, that's better counsel. Now that wasn't better counsel because it gave David time to escape and to regroup and we're going to see today that he does exactly that. So he's gone across the Jordan and so now what we're reading is that Absalom has amassed all the forces and he's appointed a general over the whole army and now the whole army is crossing over the Jordan going after David. This is what we're reading about here. And so, the, again, the first point here is that God provides for the needs of the people. And notice where David is. He's in this place called Mahanaim. And this is a large, well-protected city on the eastern side of the Jordan. And if you're a student of Scripture, this name should be familiar to you. Because this is the place where Jacob camped when he was on the run from Laban. You know the story, basically Jacob there, he, he goes uh, to this man Laban, sees he's got a couple of daughters, Leah and Rachel. Well, he falls in love with Rachel, wants to marry her, and uh, Laban says, fine, work for me for seven years and she'll be your wife. And so he's like, cool, I'll do that. So he works for him for seven years. Well, Laban, being a, a tricky guy, he pulls the old switcheroo on the wedding night, and uh, Jacob doesn't pick up on it, and Laban gives him his daughter Leah, not his daughter Rachel. Now, it's a sad thing in, if you read in, in the book of Genesis, but it's talk, it compares the two, and it says, Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, when it says Leah's eyes were delicate, that's just a, a polite way of saying it, that she was kind of tough to look at. That's what it means. It means she wasn't all that, she, she, her, her, her sister had the body and the looks, and, and, her, and Leah not so much, you know. You're like, oh man, I feel bad for Leah, right? So he works for seven years, he gets Leah in the deal, doesn't realize it's her, oh, wakes up the next morning and figures out, whoa, wait a minute, what happened here? And so he goes back to Laban. He's like, dude, you, you, what are you doing? You ripped me off. And he goes, uh, you know what? You want Rachel? She's going to cost you another seven years. So he has to work another seven years to get Rachel. So he does it. And then after that, he works an additional six years so that he can amass, you know, flocks and so on to, for himself. So he, he, Laban gets a lot of years of work out of this guy. And so finally, Jacob says to Laban, okay, dude, let me take my wives, let me take my kids, let me take all my herds, let me take all my stuff, and I want to go back to my people. And so, so he, he kind of, he tells him he wants to do this, and then, you know, this thing unfolds, and he basically just gathers everybody up and bails while Laban's away. So he doesn't find out for a few days that he's taken off. Now, he has, has the total right to do that, but Laban is upset. So he goes, he goes after him. And so he catches up to him, here in this place, this exact same place that David is at right now in the mountains of Gilead. And so as, he, as he's getting there, God shows up, speaks to Laban in a dream, basically says, leave him alone, don't touch him. And so then as, as Laban gets there, Jacob is, is basically protected by God. 
Now, what happens here is that when God delivered Jacob, um, he met him here at this place, Mahanaim, which wasn't named Mahanaim then. Mahanaim, by the way, if you want to circle the word nearby, you could write two camps because that's what it means. And it got that name when God delivered Jacob. All of a sudden, God sent angels to attend to him, and Jacob then realized whoa, I'm camping here and I, and I basically, I have all this great host. I've got, you know, my flock and my family and these provisions. And now all of a sudden, I'm, I've got these angels coming and attending to me and what I'm realizing for the first time is that I thought it was me here alone all this time. It's not. God's camped right here next to me. And it's a great picture for us. I'll tell people in counseling often as we go through counseling, I'll say, look, you have to understand there's, there's two camps at work here because you've got your situation and you're in the physical and you're going through what you're going through. But, but understand, spiritually speaking, there's a whole other realm that you can't even see that's at work here. There's spiritual forces at work, not just the physical forces at work. Your, your wife is not the enemy. The Bible says we wrestle against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the, the rulers of this dark age, and so on. And so we have to understand that in every situation, there's two camps. And God, he promises he'll never leave you. He promises he'll never forsake you. He's with you. He promises that, you know, David prayed it, Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And this is what God is doing here. God is providing for his needs. And he's preparing a table for David right there in the, in the presence of his enemies. And he's doing it at this exact same place where, where Jacob had to discover, look, there's two camps this, this is Mahanaim, the place of two camps, where I'm at and where God's at, and God is providing for me my provision. Point of application for us today is to understand and to trust and to know whatever circumstance you're going through, that God promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. God is with you. Maybe you're in a place where you're stressing, where it's like, man, I don't know how, you know, I got more month than money. I don't know what I'm going to do. And God would say to you, listen, I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for your needs. And this is what's going on with David. He's run for his life. He's, he's in the mountains of Gilead. He's got a, a, a host of people that are with him now. And he's got nothing to eat. He's got nowhere to lay his head. He's got, he's got no provisions whatsoever. And so what the heck am I going to do? Well, verse 27, we continue. As he's in Mahanaim, now it happened when David had come to Mahanaim that Shobi, the son of Nahash, uh, the, from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, it, it leaves out the brother of Kobe, but uh, apparently his brother played basketball. Anyway, Shobi, the, oh, sorry, just seeing if you guys are awake. Uh, from the people of Ammon, and um, uh, Meshur, the, the, the son of Emil from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Romalgam, brought beds and basins uh, and earthland vessels and wheat, barley, and flour, parched grain, and beans, lentils, and parched seeds. 
honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting the way that this is phrased. It's, it's um, you know, uh, beds and basins and wheat and beans and, and, and. Seven times you see this and, and. And what this is known as is a writing style called a, a polysyndenton. A polysyndenton. And what a polysyndenton is a stylistic way of writing um, where conjunctions are used after every word. You remember your schoolhouse rock when you're growing up. Conjunction, junction, what's my function, right? And, but, and, or, they'll get you very far. That's the conjunction, right? Okay, and so the, a polysyndenton is when you have conjunctions used after every word. And the reason that God does this is very specifically. He wants to call attention to every last thing that the people brought. He's calling attention to every last thing. Here's why. Two reasons. Number one, God takes care of our needs. God takes care of our needs. I remember several years ago, many years ago, just, I, was, I was at the very beginning of my walk with Christ. And, and I, I was just beginning now to grow in, in, in my maturity, still really immature, but God was starting to challenge me on different areas of my life. And, and God is so good. He's so gracious. That he doesn't say, look, you know, here's a truckload of stuff that you got to fix. He just graciously puts his finger on the next thing. He says, okay, now it's time to focus on this. Okay, now it's time to focus on this. And it's not that you wink at sin and just sort of sweep your life under the rug and, you know, nothing to see here and, you know. No, you're constantly wanting to walk with God in, in obedience. But God in his graciousness, he just brings you along. So for me, where I was at was that I had not been a faithful steward of my money. For the majority of my adult life up until that point, I had just lived, you know, for me, myself, and I. You know, and so I'd made a mess of my finances. I, I, I worked in the fire department. There was always overtime available. So it was like, you know, if I wanted something, I would just go, oh, yeah, I'll just work an overtime shift. So, so now I'm working forever just to pay for my stuff. I'm stressing about bills. And now God is beginning to convict me that if I look at my checkbook and if I try to find any evidence of the fact that I'm a follower and a believer in Christ, my checkbook would not bear that out. My checkbook would say that I was a godless atheist because I, I didn't do anything to give to God financially. Now, the, the thing is, is that God wanted me, and this was the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, he wanted me to start being faithful with my giving. Just say, look, you know what? Uh, you need to worship me with every part of you. And, and you don't worship me with your checkbook. So I'm like, oh, okay, God, but like I'm sitting here and I got a mountain of bills. I don't even know how I'm going to pay my bills. Like how am I supposed to, um, there's nothing left for you. And God's like, wrong answer. So, so I'm there and I'm stressing. I'm like, okay, God, how do I worship you with my money when I've made such a wreck of my finances? And I did something that I, that I don't necessarily recommend, but God met me here by faith. I was totally stressed out. I grabbed my Bible. I just opened it randomly. And I'm like, God, you got to speak to me. And I put my finger on Isaiah 46. Now, I'm going to read to you from there. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Um, but it, beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah 46, here's what God spoke to me and said. 
Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. These are idols. Bel and Nebo were idols. And uh, he says, their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded. A burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden. But have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, God is saying of himself, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and even I will carry, and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we should be alike? They lavish out gold of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. And from its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. God's like, look, you know, you want to worship idols of gold and silver? Go ahead. But what you're going to find is all the burdens and all the strength and everything that you've got right now where you got more month than money and whatever's going to go on. You're no different than this. You've basically taken all your money and said, I'm going to worship this. It's not going to help you with any of your problems. You're going to like lavish all this gold out of the bag and have somebody make it into this idol and, you know, and there it, is, it sits on the, on the mantle and, and, and it, can't do, it can't lift a finger to save you. And, and so God's showing me this, and I'm like, holy moly, this is like, you know, this is, my, this is where I'm at. I mean, my paycheck is not helping me out here. He says, remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. And God is just speaking to me that day, and, and I'm in the place where I'm like, what am I going to do? And God shows up and he says, well, you're not going to trust in money. And, and for me, everything in my life always revolved around money. I grew up with a scarcity mentality that like there wasn't enough to go around. So I was always just stressing about money. And so God just that day began to, to, to help me to go, you know what? God, I'm going to put you first. And here's the thing. It's not, you know, it's not about the money. It's about God wants you, and you can't live a compartmentalized life, and that's one of the big lies that Satan tells us as Christians, is that I can call myself a Christian, but I have wholesale sections of my life that I've compartmentalized, and I've basically said, this is mine, and I'll, God, I'll give you all of that. Well, God is always going to put his finger on the part of your life that you say, no, this is mine, this isn't yours. That's the part that God wants. Why? Because he wants all of you. That's why. He doesn't want anything hidden or held back from him. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He's like, hey, you know, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the, the commandments. Starts rattling off the Ten Commandments. He's like, well, I've done all of those things since I was a little kid. And, and it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said to him, yet there's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you own. Give it to the poor and then come after me. Now, this is not a prescription biblically that that's what God wants for all of us, to sell everything that we have, give it all to the poor, and then and, and follow him. No, God told this man this because that was his idol. That was the part of his life that he was holding back from God. And God's like, no, no, no. 
you got to get rid of it because you got to worship me. And so that was the issue there is that God, you know, speaking to my heart, just going, look, I want you. And this is the area where, where you've compartmentalized and say, hey, that's not mine. And I don't know, maybe that's a word for some of y'all here today. But the, but, but the Lord would, would want you to, to be in the place where, where man, there's nothing held back. And, and you're, it's not going to be about, oh, you know, can I work overtime to provide my needs? No, God's going to provide my needs. He's calling me to walk by faith. For me, in that moment, it was, uh, hey, are you going to begin to give, give to, to, to me and to my work financially? And, and, and as I made the decision to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to give to you, God showed himself faithful. He showed himself faithful. He was, he was as faithful as he promised he would be. If I would just seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so, so that was my position, that was my place, and I began to just say, God, I'm going to walk in faithfulness, I'm going to trust in you, and this is what God is doing to David. He's, 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 he's providing for him, and, and he makes it very clear here in his word in 2 Samuel to say, listen, here these guys brought, and it, it was just beds, and basins, and vessels, and wheat, and barley, and lentils, and, 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 and everything that David needed, God had. Now, the second reason that, that, that the Holy Spirit will employ a, a polysyndeton here to be able to point out every specific thing is not only that God is telling David, I'm going to provide for every single one of your needs. Not only is he telling us, look, here David left by faith and I provided every single thing that he needed. He didn't engineer that. I gave that to him. But secondly, what God wants us to see here is that he takes note of every last thing that you give in his name. He takes note of it. He takes note of everything that you give to the king. And it's an important point for us to consider at this point who it is that's giving these things. Who is giving these gifts? There's three guys that are mentioned. Well, I'll just point out two of them. First of all, we've got Shobi. And Shobi, as you read it, you see that he's the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the people of Jordan. And that should ring a bell if you've been with us as we've been going through 2 Samuel. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 10, David heard that Nahash had died. And he sent a group of guys to go to his son, Hanun, who assumed the kingdom, and he sent some guys to him basically to say, hey, we, we come, we just want to offer our condolences, our compassion. Hey, can we help you in any sort of way? David just, you know, he feels bad for you. You've lost your dad. And, and so what happens then is Hanun reads it all the wrong way, has advisors who tells him, no, David doesn't really care about you. He's just spying out the land and all. And so Hanun turned on David and attacked him, turned into a big war, lots of drama. Um, and, and I mean, you think your last family reunion was bad. This thing turned way bad. And so what happens then is, is as we're reading this, well, Hanun had a brother, Shobi. Shobi's his brother. Shobi saw what David did. He saw the kindness of David, and so it had an effect on him. He took note of it. He's saying, look, I, I, did, I, I see what you did, and I want to take care of you. Now, the other guy, one of the other two guys that's mentioned is this guy, uh, Makir, son of Emil from Lodabar. Now, who is this guy? Again, if you've been with us in chapter 9, David, he said at that point, he goes, look, Man, is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I can bless for Jonathan's sake? 
Because, you know, the custom back then is when one king, when one kingdom was overthrown by another kingdom, then the guy who was overtaking that kingdom, he would kill every last member of the family of the king that preceded him so he didn't have any, any challenge to the throne. And so David and Jonathan, back when, when you know, Saul was still ruling, Jonathan, supposed heir to the, to the throne, and Jonathan seeing the writing on the wall, knowing very certain that David is going to be the king, and in fact supporting that, he and, he and David entered into a covenant where he said, hey, look, when you become king, you know, don't, don't, don't follow that quaint little custom and kill all of us. And David's like, no, I'm not going to kill you all. Everything's cool. So they have this, this sort of agreement. Well, subsequently, through the chain of events, Saul dies, Jonathan dies. And so David, after he assumes the throne, he's like, I want to keep my commitment to Jonathan. Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I can bless? And so he comes to find out, yeah, there's a guy named Mephibosheth. He's the son of Jonathan, Saul, one of Saul's, Saul's grandsons. And he's staying at Makir's house here in Lodabar. And so David goes there. And so what did Makir get to see? He saw David being gracious. He saw David taking care of this, of this kid and, and, and all, and, and just lavishing out upon him. <clears throat> and so, again, another example of somebody who took note of the faithful things that, that, that David had done, and they themselves now say, you know, just as he was faithful, I want to be faithful. And the point here for us is to understand that God takes note of every last thing that you or I give to him. Every last thing that you give in his name. You want to serve the king? You say, well, I don't have anything. Hey, you know what? Do you have beans? Do you have a basin? Do you have a bed? There's things that you can give and God will take note. Do you have time to take care of a kid in the nursery? Do you have time to, you know, or the mindset to say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice a Starbucks for the sake of building a church? Do you have a mindset that says, you know, hey, I can do this, I can do that. Whatever it is, God sees it. And God takes note of it. And so such an incredible thing for us to see that, that, you know, God sees, God knows, and he takes note. I'm reminded of the woman who came to anoint Jesus' body for burial. He was still alive. They're at, they're, they're at an assembly at somebody's house. And Mary comes and she breaks this alabaster jar, very costly spikenard. She pours it all over Jesus' head. And, and everybody around, around her starts complaining. Judas is leading the group. And he's like, oh, what a waste. This, this, this perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And of course, the Bible is clear to tell us that the only reason he said that is because he used to steal from the, he kept the money bag and he used to steal from it. And so it was, you know, he, he saw this, this sacrifice that this woman gave as something that he could have made merchandise of. And Jesus said, lay off her, leave her alone. He said, she's done what she could. She's done what she could. She was the only one that was paying attention to what Jesus was saying. He said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And so she's like, I'm going to anoint your body for burial. It's like she listened. She got it. And she did what she could to anoint the Lord, to worship the Lord. And my point of application for us, are you doing what you can to sacrifice, to worship God? And so this beautiful thing, that's what's happening here. Jesus said, hey, what a, you know, if you give even a child a cup of cold water in my name, you'll by no means lose your reward. Jesus said, you know, whatever you do and to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. 
And the Lord takes note. And it brings us to the next point that, listen, when we walk with God by faith, and this is all the stuff, the lessons that we're learning here in 2 Samuel 16, 17, 18. When we walk with God by faith, not only does he frustrate the plans of our enemies, not only does he answer the prayers of his kids, not only does he provide for the needs of his people, but uh, our second point today is that God provides people to walk with us. God provides people to walk with us. Chapter 18, verse 1, we, we continue. And we read here, it says, And David numbered the people who were with him, and he set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, uh, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. So he, he's dividing his forces. He gets three guys to head up, three generals to head up each division of his forces. Very shrewd military tactic here, dividing his forces. And, uh, and now he says, look, and I'm going to go out with you too. Um, but the people, verse 3, they answered and they said, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, <coughs> for uh, you are now more help to us uh, in the city. And so what's going on here is that David says, look, I'm going to go with you. And when he says this, when he makes this statement that says, I will surely go out with you, this is what's known as a, a PL verb uh, in the Hebrew. And what it means is that it's a very intense action on his part. And, and when they respond, you shall not go out. Again, same thing. It's a PL verb, very intense response. And, it, and it's written in the infinitive absolute. And what that means is that, well, let me tell you what it's not. You ever go out to eat with your brother-in-law and he kind of makes the fake like he's going to pay the check, but he's really not going to pay the check? He's like, oh, l- 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 let me get that. Let me get my wallet here. And he's just sort of stalling. You know, why? Because he wants you to get the check. Right, And so what's happening, David is not going, oh, I'll go out with you, but it's really a fake because he doesn't have any intention of paying the check. No, this is rather the situation where, think of somebody you go out to eat with, and you're planning, everything in you is, I'm picking up this check, and then they make some lame excuse, like they're going to the bathroom, and they go find the waitress, and they give them their check, their credit card, and say, just bring me, just bring me the bill. Right? And then the bill comes, and they're like, no, I was going to pay that. And you both fully wanted to, this is the kind of situation that's going on here. David is saying, look, I'm going with you. Absolutely, I'm going with you. And they're saying, no, absolutely, you're not going with us. Because, look, they're all, all they, t- they just want you dead. That's all. They don't care about us. We mean nothing to them. If you stay here, you're more valuable to us. We'll be able to meet them. We'll be able to counter their forces. And you'll be in a position where you can send reinforcements and so on. And it's good counsel. And verse 4 says, Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. I could totally go off on a tangent on that, but great leadership here. Good leaders know when to heed good counsel, even though they're the ones... Because David, in his authority, could have said, tough, I'm going, deal with it, and done it. But he knows, you know what, this is actually good counsel. And so, so he says, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by 
thousands. Now, again, the point here is that God provides people to walk with us. And the question comes up, where did the thousands come from? Because remember, when David fled, and it hasn't been all that long, he fled with hundreds. He didn't flee with thousands. And now we're talking about they're dividing the forces, and there are thousands of people with him. Where did all the people come from? That's the question. Well, here's the answer. Shobi and Makur aren't the only ones to recognize David's character. Clearly, thousands of other people have rallied to him, have come to him, have come to be a part of what's going on here. And I'm reminded when we were going through Daniel, there's a, there's a section in Daniel chapter 2 where the king has a dream. And if you remember, if you were with us when we went through Daniel, the king gets this dream. It troubles him greatly. He calls for all the wise men, and he wants them to interpret the dream. And so the wise men get there. They're like, okay, cool. Tell us the dream, and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he's like, no, because then you're just going to make up some phony baloney interpretation. Uh, and, uh, and so if you're really hearing from God, then tell me my dream. You know, you, you call the psychic hotline. They should be able to say, hello, Ted, what do you want? You know, it's like if they were for real, you know. But uh, anyway, so, so they, the, the king's like, no, 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 you tell me my dream. Then tell me the interpretation. They're like, nobody can do that. So the king gets mad. He's like, I'm going to kill y'all. Y'all, every last worthless one of you, you're all dead. So, so the word comes to, to, to Daniel. Hey, uh, dude, the, king, the king's going to kill you. Sorry, dude. He's like, what? Yeah, got to kill you. He's like, let me, go, let me go talk to the king, which is ridiculous, absolutely insane. Because the king's already said, all you wise men are lame and lousy and you can't interpret my dreams, so you're going to be dead. So if the word realistically came back to the king, say, hey, one of the wise men, Daniel, wants to talk to you, the king would have been like, I already passed, he already had his opportunity to tell me my dream, so I don't want to talk to him, whatever. No, but crazy enough, he, he welcomes him in, and Daniel comes and he goes, hey, look, just give me time, let me seek the Lord, I'll tell you what your dream is, the whole bit. And, and he lets him. Now, what's going on here? Well, the point that I made then, and the point that fits now, is, is that character brings access. Character brings access. And, and what happened here is that this king, while he was willing to kill everybody else, well, because of Daniel's character, he was, he was willing to say, okay, I will, I will hear what Daniel has to say. Okay, I will grant Daniel time. Why? He's a man of character. David, in our story, in our scenario, same thing. He's a man of character. Look, he ain't perfect. But everybody knows him to be a man after God's heart, a man who's seeking the Lord. And that's an attractive deal. And we need to understand here, as the body of Christ here at Reliance Church, that God, when you desire to to walk by faith with God, God will bring others to walk that walk of faith with you. And, And what attracts people together to pursue the Lord isn't perfection, because ain't none of us perfect. No, what's attractive is when a person honestly says, look, I just want to know him, I just want to walk with him, and I, and, I, and I don't have it all together. I'm not even pretending to have it all together, but, but I really do honestly just want to know God, I just want to seek God. 
That's an attractive thing. And what happens is, is that one becomes two. Two becomes four. Four becomes eight. Why? Because we become an army when we just walk together with God to say, look, I just want to know him and I, and I, just, want, I just want to follow in his will. And the, the Bible says that, that very clearly, it says that we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. And that's, that's this, this beautiful picture here, is that God, as, as David is walking by faith with God, God provides people to walk with him. Listen, God provides people to walk with you, just to, 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 to seek him. And again, the dynamic isn't that you're perfect, the dynamic is that you're sincere. Well, that's what David is doing here. He gets up, it's an attractive thing. We continue, verse 5, it says, Now the king had commanded Joab... Abishai and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And so what's happening here is that these are the men that David has put over his thousands. These are the generals that are overseeing each division of his forces. He's standing there at the gate. The forces are parading by on their way out to do battle with the forces of Absalom. And David is saying to them now, he's exercised great military wisdom and strategy up until this point. And now the, the, the father's heart gets in the way of what is the right counsel. And he's like, oh, please. As you're going out to do battle, be gentle with my backstabbing, murderous son, uh, 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 um, Absalom. And so, this is what he says. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. So he's very clear about it. So, verse 6, the people went out into the field of battle against Israel... And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day, for the battle was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Some commentators say the way that this is phrased in the, in the Hebrew is that the, basically there were wild animals in the woods that, that devoured the majority of the people. I don't see that as much as the more practical, the David and his forces chose the battleground on which they were going to fight. And they themselves recognized that they were vastly outnumbered and so that the more strategic place to fight would be in these thick woods where every battle was reduced to a handful of people on either side. That evened out the odds and that made a much greater chance of success for David and his more shrewd fighters and that proved to carry the day. And that's what this is talking about here. It says, verse 8, for... the for, um, or I'm sorry, verse 9, Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. Um, this guy doesn't know about fighting. He's, he's only there because of the advice of Hushai the, the, the Gittite that, that basically said, hey, you know, he's thwarting the counsel of Ahithophel. And so Ahithophel said, let me take some strategic forces and go get David. And Hushai said, no, 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 take your whole army and you lead them. That way your people will see it. All the while, he's just buying David time so he can, you know, retreat and regroup, which is what's going on here. 
And so now Absalom is leading the battle on a mule. You never see David leading the battle on a mule, um, right? And so he's riding on a mule. It says, The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. So Absalom's right on this mule. And remember, this is the guy that cuts and weighs his hair every year. He, he is Mr. You know, Vane. Uh, who, who's the dude with the long hair? Uh, Fabio? Is that it? I said Fabian first service. That was Annette Funicello's guy. Um, Fabio, he's got all this long, you know, that's, that's who Absalom was. He was all about vain and looks and, you know, all of his long hair. And so now he's hanging like a pinata, caught in his hair in the tree. And it's almost like you can see God, you know, a hundred years earlier when the, the seeds are falling to the ground and pollinating and starting to grow. And he's like, we're going to put a terebinth tree right here. And this is where Absalom's going to get his, you know, kind of thing. And so Absalom, he's riding along, and now his hair get, is his undoing. Um, and uh, that vain thing that he, that he worshipped now is his, his undoing. He's hanging there like a piñata. He's going to become a piñata. And so verse 10 says, Now a certain man saw it, and he told Joab, and he said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. And so Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him. And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. And the guy's like, oh, I could have had a belt? Really? Oh, well, this is talking about the belt like, you, like a fighter will get, like a prize belt. That's the idea here. You, you would get this honored thing. But, verse 12, the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son, for in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life, for there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. In other words, look, he said not to do it. And somebody else came to David and said, I saw Saul out in the field and I put him out of my misery. I killed him. And David killed the guy on the spot. He's like, I'm not going to do that. And if I did do that, even though you tell me right now, you'd have given me all this silver and a belt, you'd be the first guy to roll over on me in front of David when he killed me for doing that very thing. And so he tells him this. Uh, verse 14, then Joab, I love this. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three, in other words, he's like, he couldn't, re, he's like, I, 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 I ain't got time even to talk about that. You're right. You're totally right. I would have rolled over on you. And we're wasting time because there's a pinata out in the field that needs some beating on, you know? And, and so he says, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and he thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Absalom's armor surrounded Absalom, struck and killed him. All of that to say is that the spears went in and they beat him like a piñata as well. And the combination killed him dead. Um, verse 16 says, So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returning from pursuing, uh, returned from pursuing Israel for Joab held back the people. Now what we're going to see when we get into this next week, we're going to see that that it was the right decision militarily and strategically for Absalom to die. And, you know, we read the, the outcome there in verse 16. Joab blows the trumpet. He's like, this settles the matter. 
Absalom is dead. This whole rebellion thing is going to go away. We just took care of the problem by, you know, we took care of the problem by killing the problem. And he's true. Um, there's going to be consequences for Joab. David's going to remove him from his command uh, for this. And we're going to see David just, you know, grieving as only a father can grieve for his son, regardless of what Absalom has done. Uh, lots of godly lessons there for us to get into um, here in, in the future. But what we do now is we close here with a sad picture of the consequences of sin. You know, our first point today is that God provides for our needs. Certainly he does. Secondly, you know, God provides people to walk with us. Certainly he does. But the point here for us as we close is that our prideful provisions are going to fail. God provides. He provides our, he provides our needs. He provides, you know, provides our provisions. He provides people. But our prideful provisions will fail. And that's what we see here. Because, you know, these chapters, they've illustrated for us the fruit of walking in faith with God. But right now what we're seeing, man, we're seeing the painful consequences of when we don't. You see there in verse 7, it tells us that over 20,000 people died this day. 20,000 people. And we're not talking about modern warfare with, you know, bombs and and grenades and and machine guns taking people out. And 20,000 people is a great slaughter even with our modern warfare. But we're talking 20,000 people in hand-to-hand combat. Man, some brutal, brutal stuff. And we do well just to remember, why did this happen? Listen, David's sin, Absalom's rebellion, Ahithophel's bitterness, Joab's anger. Listen, that's why it happened. And the lesson for us is that immorality, rebellion, bitterness, anger, listen, All of it bears no living or lasting fruit. It doesn't bear any living or lasting fruit. Our flesh wants to, you know, sin immorally or to rebel or to to hold on to bitterness or anger or, or, you know, whatever it is. And, and And it might feel good to our flesh to gratify, but listen, it doesn't bear any living or lasting fruit. And so 20,000 people die, and now among them is Absalom. And I want you, in closing, to note where they bury Absalom. It's my final point, and it's kind of the final takeaway for us of this section. If you look there in verse 17, it says, And they took Absalom, and they cast him into a large pit in the woods. And they laid a very large heap of stones over him, and then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now, Look at verse 18, because this is to juxtapose what we've just read in 17. It says, now Absalom in his lifetime, when he was alive, he'd taken and he set up a pillar for himself, which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it's called Absalom's monument. Listen, Absalom wanted to set up a monument to himself. He set up this pillar. It was all erected to, to himself. It was to exalt himself. It was to, to glorify himself. And, and in verse 18, when it says that he set up the pillar for himself, this is known as, as a he-fill verb. And the idea of it is that he, it was done by Absalom for Absalom. And, and notice for what purpose he did it to keep, he said, my name in remembrance, which is also a he-fill verb. 
And the idea is that Absalom did this to elicit worship and praise of himself. I want a monument, I want a pillar, I want these stones all stacked up so that everybody will praise me, everybody will worship me. And what is Absalom known for? He's known for betraying his father. His monument is that he was thrown into a deep pit and stones were stacked on top of him. That's his monument. Even though he wanted this other thing to be his monument. Listen to Satan's words in Isaiah 14. He said, I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet, God says to him, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest pits, lowest depths of the pit. It's striking similarity there. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12 says, For the Lord of heaven's armies has a day of reckoning, and he'll punish the proud and the mighty, and he'll bring down everything that is exalted. He'll bring down everything that's exalted. Our prideful provision is going to fail. And I know many of you here, you got kids. It's interesting because he says there in verse 18, he sets up this monument because he doesn't have any kids. But, you know, when we're going through this and we're studying this, we're like, oh, wait a minute. Because we saw in Scripture that, that, you know, back in chapter 14, said he had three sons. So what happened to the three sons? Well, some people speculate that they died in this civil war. He lost his kids in the middle of it. We don't know if that's true or not. I don't think we have the information for that. But for whatever thing, he doesn't have any kids now, and now he's trying to set up a monument to himself, for himself. I just think that the, the, the takeaway for us is that a lot of us, you know, you think maybe about how do I want to be remembered? What kind of monument do I want for myself? Well, look, how about this? How about a godly life? The greatest monument you can leave is a godly life. If you've got kids, greatest monument you can leave for your name, for yourself, is the monument to Jesus Christ in his name. That you raise him to know the Lord. That's the monument that lasts. That's the monument that stands the test of time. Everything else winds up in a pit with rocks stacked on top of it. Everything else is that kind of monument. So the question for us today is what kind of monument am I going to leave? 